0: What's going on asymmetry? A deviation from our standard bonsai geekery on asymmetry. We were approached by Kate Brelge, who's a doctoral candidate at Temple University, and she is doing her thesis on plant care and the ethics that surround our relationship humans with plants. Uh, A fascinating and I think engaging subject that we as bonsai practitioners tend to consider a lot in the privacy of our own garages, homes, gardens, greenhouses, as we work with our trees. But I think to take this to the broader community and to really explore the theme of ethics as it applies to our relationship with the plants, the ethics around utilizing collected material the discussions of how we quantify plant intelligence, et cetera. The conversation went in a variety of different places, incredibly engaging. And Kate was just an absolute pleasure to talk with. So sit back, relax, turn on your thinking caps, because this one goes pretty deep and enjoy.
1: We want to dive deep in some controversial stuff and put you on the record.
0: hmm Can you ask us more controversial questions, please?
2: Absolutely. That's what philosophy is all
0: about. (laughs) (laughs) You weren't supposed to hear that, but I actually think it's a great place to start. Wow, look at your office behind you. Holy cow.
2: Yeah, a bunch of stuff. I have a loom.
0: Do you weave?
2: Yeah, I used to. So I I, uh, majored in art and philosophy in undergrad. Okay. So I do art as well as philosophy. Cool.
0: Uh, yeah. Wow. And what's your uh, what's your medium of choice in in the art that you create?
2: When I was an undergrad, I loved figure drawing. Mm. That was figure drawing and portraiture with ball with a pen. So, um, but now I do more textiles, I guess.
0: Yeah. So, yeah. Wow. I'm super excited that you reached out to us. Uh, this is Ira. Hey, nice I'm, to meet I'm, you. I'm Ryan. Um, in person, kind of. Yeah. And, uh, and when, when Ira, uh, well, JP actually first approached me about it. And then we, uh, I know Ira has been handling a lot of the correspondence, but I really enjoy, uh, the discussion of sort of ethics and sustainability as it relates to bone size specifically. So like, I know, um, you know, you have, uh, a series of questions that you want to ask me, which I am super happy to answer, uh, to contribute to what you're working with. And also um, whatever else comes of the conversation, I think we embrace it because it's a it's a big discussion. It's a big, deep discussion, and I think it's a, a discussion that not many people are 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 willing or wanting to have. I think a lot of people shy away from it, and and I just think like y- you got to kind of look look at the look at it uh, in the eye, you know, and really address it. So, anyways. I'm going to turn it over to you to what you need from us. And then I'm going to ask you to further engage in conversation after that.
2: Absolutely. And just to let you know, the questions are kind of a a type of guide, but all of the conversations I've had with practitioners, we haven't gone through them one by one. We just kind of take the conversation where it goes. So feel free to ask me questions or add something or go in a tangent if you want, that's fine. Okay. Well,
0: well, maybe I can just, maybe I can just start because I was looking, um, the, the email that you sent us, I was looking at this and it, it seemed to me your sort of the basis, um, and I'm trying to think, trying to find here where you discussed sort of the breadth of your research. Oh, here we go. Feminist philosophy, normative ethics, aesthetics, and environmental philosophy. These are three separate areas of study, or these are all wrapped into kind of a singular uh, area or direction that you're headed at? Can you help me understand that a little bit?
2: Absolutely. So all of those are subfields of kind of like philosophy. So you can have a project that's just feminist philosophy or one that's just environmental ethics. Um, My project mixes a few of them. So I'm currently working on my dissertation. I'm a doctoral candidate in Philadelphia, and um, my project is on environmental ethics. So I take kind of an ethics of care framework which is historically associated with feminist philosophy, and apply it to human-plant relationships. Um, And then it's a little strange (laughs) for philosophers because I then apply it to the real world. So I look at three case studies of types of human-plant relationships and kind of talk to people who actually do that work and see if the theory makes sense given how the real world is. Mm. So.
0: So it would be counterproductive for you to share your theory with me before we begin, I'm assuming, right? Like you don't want me to have any bias going into the conversation.
2: A little, yeah. Although you can probably tell from the questions I sent, um, and we can discuss it at the end after we've kind of discussed some of your views. um, And I can explain kind of what the project isn't where I'm at especially with the bonsai chapter so bonsai is going to be like one chapter great yeah dissertation.
0: I didn't read the questions I stopped at the questions okay, cool. because I did I didn't I didn't want that to be like something I was prepared for I just figured you know it's like better to but I would love it if you would uh explain your 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 theory and sort of what your how this all contributes because that would be fascinating after we talk so that's really exciting
2: awesome yeah definitely
0: very good well so, let's go let's do it
2: Okay, cool. So um, I know a little bit of your history. I've listened to a few other um, episodes of Asymmetry and read a few articles on the blog. Um, But if you could just summarize what your history with bonsai is, kind of like how did you get into it? And then do you consider yourself an individual practitioner or a practitioner associated with like an institution?
0: Oh, interesting! Wow, that's yeah. That's that yeah. is a <laughs> that is a great question. Um, you know, bonsai for me was almost like a kind of like a moment of immaculate conception, just based on the fact that I had been introduced to bonsai and exposed to bonsai via the Karate Kid as like a pop popular cultural mechanism that I think introduced a lot of people to bonsai and and probably also created a lot of stereotypes that, that people associate with bonsai. But uh, I was more interested in the martial arts at that point in time. And it wasn't until uh, I saw an infomercial about Japan and the closing sequence had this bonsai tree and, you know, it, it kind of created this mystery around Japan and and bonsai specifically there were images of you know natural environment of geisha and of and of a bonsai tree and I was like wow and maybe some taiko drums which I also thought were pretty cool uh and then the next day like literally the next day I went to the county fair and, and there was a gentleman there selling bonsai trees and he was normal people were buying them and I just thought oh I I had had the interpretation that this was an art form that had an aura of mystery around it shrouded in sort of this Mr. Miyagi Daniel son relationship in the karate kid and yet here it was as this really high point of of you know as a cultural representation in this you know infomercial for travel Japan or Nippon Airways or whatever and then I was at the county fair and it was an accessible so like I had kind of this tiered exposure to it not intentionally looking at it and and i rode my bike to the library i didn't buy a bonsai tree that day i rode my bike to the library i checked out every book that they had on bonsai and and like that was it i was in Uh, and, and it and it you know it captivated my life when i was 12 years old and and it uh it really my passion has only grown
2: Awesome. And do you, th- uh, so you started out as kind of an individual practitioner then? Like, so you started with books and seeing it at the uh, fair. What was kind of like your next step? Did you experiment on your own or did you go to a workshop?
0: Yeah. So much of my original and initial experience formed what and who I am today as far as a bonsai educator, because for the next, Oh, man. I mean, I I was 12 years old. I went to Japan when I was 21. So for the next nine years, I was an individual practitioner that was trying to find knowledge. I checked those books out at the library. That was my first access point. I I mean, I literally consumed, you know, osmotically that information. I slept with them. I looked at the pictures over Mm -hmm. and over. I memorized the pages. Um, The birth of the internet dial-up modem meant it took a long time to download a picture, but I was in the middle of the night, you know, getting up and downloading images of bonsai that took 20 minutes to download and like 30 minutes to print and emptied the family's like color ink cartridge, you know, for a single sheet. But like that, I just could not get enough. But I was in rural Colorado. Um, I was I was three and a half hours from Denver, which would be the first contact point and and ultimately a very influential contact point. But ultimately, I really moved to California not only to get a Collegiate education in horticulture, knowing I was going to pursue bonsai, but I moved to California to be smack dab in the middle of what I perceived to be the most um, prolific bonsai culture, you know, in in the United States at that time. And 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 that was um, even then. I had to put going to school in San Luis Obispo. I was three and a half hours to L.A., four hours to San Francisco. Those were your two major bonsai hubs. I was six hours away from. El Dorado Bonsai, which was a facility, the first educational facility I had ever known of, or it was really the first teaching facility for bonsai in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, And so those were my like three major epicenters that I really spent a lot of my time at in college. Every single weekend, I was either in the mountains, um, you know, searching for bonsai material or I was studying with somebody somewhere somewhere. But I was not associated or affiliated with an institution necessarily because there wasn't the kind of curriculum or there wasn't the kind of breakdown of bonsai into a digestible educational system that allowed me to really succinctly build my knowledge, confidence, skills, and understanding. It was really a piecemeal operation.
2: Awesome. And so then when you went to Japan, you said you were 21?
0: I was 21, yeah.
2: Okay, and did you kind of organize that individually, or did you like have to apply?
0: Yeah, my so um, through through going down to Los Angeles, San Francisco, putting myself out there in the bonsai world, I would sleep in the back of my truck. You know, and and sort of offer my labor in exchange for information with whoever was willing mm-hmm. to allow me and like give me their address to their backyard. Basically, uh, <laughs> I, I met a gentleman named Benoki. Benoki was the first apprentice to John Naka. John Naka was mm-hmm. the father of American bonsai, and John yeah. Naka had very strong ties to the Nippon Bonsai Association in Japan and a lot of the the bonsai professionals in Japanese bonsai. Um, so anyways, I started working with Ben down in LA at the Huntington library and garden collection. And Ben said he would take me, you know, he said, if you're this serious, I'll take you to Japan. I said, great. I want to study with Masahiko Kimura, whom, whose work I had been looking at since I was 12, a month after I went to the library and checked out all those books, a family friend gave me a bonsai today, which was a periodical published in the United States at the time. And I saw Mr. Kimura's work and I said, I'm going to study with him. So going to Japan winter quarter of my uh, second year in college, um, Benoki introduced me to him. I requested an apprenticeship and I wrote Mr. Kimura a letter a month for you know two and a half years uh, before he ever actually wrote me back, or before I was able to establish an an apprenticeship or secure an apprenticeship with him, so it was it was a continual request.
2: And did you write in Japanese or English?
0: I wrote in Japanese. Yeah. So I was studying. Uh-huh. I recognized that I was not going to be able to go to Japan and be successful without mm-hmm. a Japanese language skill set. But like any language, you can't learn Japanese studying and you know, an hour, three times a week in, in a college scenario. But one of the things that I did do that prepared me for Japan was, um, I bought like a, at that, at that time in the early two thousands, it was a like 52 CD set called the Pimler approach to language for the Japanese language. And as I was driving to LA or San Francisco or El Dorado I was listening to language CDs. I was practicing. I had like a tutor outside of class that would help me uh, edit the letters I was writing. But you know, the first letter I wrote him was like, it was like a kindergarten, you know, level letter, and and sort of my language skills evolved. Mm-hmm. But I had a lot of help too.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. So cool. When have your attitudes towards bonsai plants? or bonsai as a practice either Mm -hmm. changed over time. Like when you were young and kind of fascinated bonsai, like what are the attitudes you had towards the plants?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think, I think the first point of contact for a lot of people with bonsai is either it's cool, it's novel, uh, and unique or, or it's fascinating. Like it captures your attention from like a, what is this? How is this? Who does that? Like, what is trying to understand this thing? Um, and as I was in college, I started to recognize how much more, um, how much more considerate I was needing to be. And I started realizing the, um, I started realizing the um, responsibility I was taking on, especially when I started collecting um, or gathering wild specimens. I started recognizing like, oh wow, I'm, I'm like really starting to enter a relationship with the natural environment that is not to be abused. That is not to be taken for granted. I, I, and that that shifted things. Now, when I went to Japan, I mean, the more serious you get about bonsai, the more you start to sacrifice the self, you know, time. Some sometimes, you know, literally your physical well being potentially uh, for the responsibility of caring for these living organisms that should and outside of random circumstances would. Probably outlive you, right? And and have certainly been here longer, uh, or have the potential to be here longer than us. And so it, it started to become. It, it went from like a novelty to like uh, a, an interest and a passion and pursuit to a relationship um, that continues to get deeper and deeper. I mean, I'm twelve years into my practice, coming back from Japan as uh, you know after a six year apprenticeship, which which. Came after nine years of really dedicated independent study, and uh, and I- I'm shocked. You know, I'm shocked, and e- e- even even the self sacrifice has has over the course of time has become uh, very gratifying and a sensation that uh, that I value more than you know than I feel like I need to find a way around. I actually embrace it now. So it's it's kind of odd. We just had like a winter event. And we've got like 700 trees and I had to set them all on the ground. And, um, and it it was just oddly satisfying to care for these living things, even though, you know, my back is completely destroyed after doing so. Like I was, I am willing to do that and it, and it actually feels good at this point. So I don't know how I crossed that threshold, but it's happened.
2: Yeah. And so the, the value of the tree then, like how would you describe the value of the trees that you have or that you take care of?
0: (laughs) Um, well, I think there's, it's a matter of perspective, right? Like there's a monetary value, <laughs> certainly. Um, unfortunately, monetary value has the threshold of what the market will bear. And that is always changing. And that's very culturally, that's a cultural thing. That's a societal thing. That's a generational thing. Um, but the value as far as, you know, because for bonsai, the trees that you choose to, or at least for myself, the trees I choose to invest that kind of energy in are trees that I absolutely have to love because I only have so much energy. And so I can't have 3000 bonsai trees. I just don't have the energy for them. It would be irresponsible from the perspective and approach that I take towards bonsai, which is you do sacrifice the self for the tree ultimately. Um, so I, I, I have to, I have to love them Um, But the longer that I engage with them as a living organism, the more I have a personal relationship with them. They become a time capsule. They hold a lot of memories and nostalgia. Uh, We've been through a lot together. Some of them have survived horrendous things that we've both had to weather the storm of, you know, whether it's weather, whether it's human-related events, whether it's uh, a marker in time that I don't want to forget or I would love to forget, and that tree still holds that, and it's helped me reconcile that. So my relationship with them is probably similar to what you could describe as a relationship with another human being. It just, um, the fact that the tree doesn't talk back and doesn't engage in that way means that my observation and knowledge of the tree is very, uh, I I think it's very intimate and I think it's very deeply assumed. And inside of that, it still has an air of mystery that continues to drive my fascination. I don't completely understand any tree yet. I feel so close to it.
2: Yeah. You, so a few things. Um, I think it's fascinating. This is just my own commentary. When, Because um, I've asked the question about value a few times. And a few people, their first response is money, which I just think is interesting. Because, you know, in ethics, <laughs> like there's so many other options. So it's interesting that that's something that's on people's minds. But I think, like, people who do it professionally and for a living, like, in a society where you have to do that, it's just interesting to me that it comes up. Um yeah. And then it seems inevitably to slide into, not slide into, but then when people talk about their own collections, it's like, like you said, like it's like, it's almost like they're human. Yeah. Um, or something.
0: Yeah. And I think, the thing that I that I kind of lost in that was I was going to tell you you know the the value of bonsai is the journey right it's like the process it's not in the finished product which I think would be hard for somebody viewing bonsai for the first time to see it's it's about that that relationship that's established it's about the 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 memories that that tree holds and carries in the history and for for trees in Japan the hands that have touched it over the course of time is another big one uh the marker of World War II and and trees that survived that event is a very big uh you know sort of iconic component that those trees carry forward um but I but I also think and it just slipped my mind again in terms of um the mon- oh, I was thinking about this yesterday because we spoke with uh, a West- a Western gentleman who's trying to be a bone type professional in Japan, and um, ugh, just keeps coming in and out of my head. I'm so sorry.
2: No, you're fine.
0: Uh, I don't know. I don't, I, I'm, I'm, hope- <laughs> I'm hoping. I'm hoping you're going to fill stimulate. in the blank here. No, no, no. It's <laughs> it, it, it was about oh. Oh oh oh! I was thinking about the fact that you know bonsai practitioners, as far as a relationship with trees or a relationship with mm-hmm. plants, obviously there are different perspectives. Some people pursue bonsai solely for the commercial aspect. Some people pursue bonsai without the commercial aspect being even remotely considered. Um, but when you when you when you start to look at the intimacy with which a bonsai practitioner knows plant material and establishes a relationship with the natural environment. I, I'm i biased, but I also, if I objectively think about it, can't find another profession or another pursuit or another relationship within the human plant connection that could even remotely come close. And again, I am biased, but I cannot objectively think of one because I could think of who else engages with the internal vascular structure of a tree while also considering its appearance, while also considering its origin, while also considering it's root system, who dissects the root system and sculpts the roots, who dissects the vascular system and sculpts the foyer mass, who maintains, who manages, who waters, who nutritions. You know, most plant material goes in the ground. Uh, half of plant material that people engage with is an annual and only lives for a year. You know, so like when you think about bonsai and the intimacy with which we know it, if you are a grafter in a commercial industry, in the nursery industry, say in the Willamette Valley, south of Portland, for the specialty conifer industry specifically, you are intimately engaging with the vascular system, interchanging the foliar mass one for another through the grafting process over the course of spring. And you know, just based on that, you know season, you know physiology, you know technique, and you know aesthetics. But you are doing that for the purpose of selling when we take on a tree at Mirai, although we may sell that tree, we don't take a tree on for the purpose of selling. I take a tree on with the assumption that I'm going to cultivate that tree and pass it on after my death. That is the assumption that I have to have when I engage with a piece of plant material. And that's why we commoditized education and feel comfortable with that because I never wanted to lean on selling a tree I had a very close relationship for because I had to keep the lights on. Like that, that never felt good to me. I saw it happening in Japan and in Europe. It wasn't my motivation, but because of that, the intention behind each piece is so much more personal and intimate. And and I think um, I think that's worth saying that bonsai specifically, whether this is a par- part of your project or not, has been on my mind as the most intimate relationship that I, I I've seen established with a plant.
2: Yeah. It has been really interesting talking with bonsai practitioners because before I started the project, I knew a little bit about the care required, but I did not know. <laughs> like It's just been yeah. like a huge landslide of information, yeah. just how much practitioners organize their entire lives around their trees. I mean, it's you know?
0: ultimately... Uh, you know, to say it's a practice, I think, is even understating it. It's a, it's a lifestyle, depending on how, how, how deep down the rabbit hole you choose to go.
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Have you had trees that have gone on to others and? do they kind of, I don't know, I'm thinking of like, you know, how sometimes like you'll adopt out a pet and people will send you pictures back to let you know, like how the pet's doing mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, do you ever get updates on the plants that you have passed on to others?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, that's actually, um, that's actually kind of at the backbone of what drives a lot of the The changing of care of trees would be students that I've very closely educated and know have the capacity to care for the trees or collections that we curate where we would be managing the care team and being the continual uh, maintainers or the continual hands that would be evolving the aesthetic and the health of the tree. So that comes hand in hand for us with the distribution of our work.
2: Okay. Yeah. Cool. Has a tree, I'm sure. <laughs> I, I don't think I've talked to someone actually for this project who hasn't had this experience, but has a tree ever died in your care? And what is that feeling like? Oh, if it has.
0: Of course. Yeah. That's a part of it. That's a part of working with a living medium is you get to confront death. Um, yeah. I, ha- I Obviously it's hard, especially when you put the kind of care and attention into it and you develop the kind of relationship the more uh, significant and longstanding the relationship is, the harder it is to to lose a tree. And for me, when I lose a tree, you ha- I have the obligation of looking at that event directly in the eyes you know and confronting a very hard situation because you want to you don't want to lose a tree in vain you want to learn from that experience so that you hopefully can avoid that so that you can prevent that outcome for other trees and treating it as a learning experience I I think is the respectful way you know it's never a positive to lose a tree but it's this respectful way to handle that unfortunate occurrence um, but I cannot discard of that tree myself for whatever reason. I have a mental block around it. Uh, I have, a, um, a really, uh, close working relationship with, uh, my garden director. He understands sort of my philosophy around this. He takes care of that for me and it's really hard for him too, you know? So it's just an unfortunate aspect of the art form, but we've kind of developed, um, you know a a system should that happen that that we're able we're able to both move on and like keep moving forward because there there are, you know there are other trees that we really do have to take care of and we've got to learn from that
2: yeah that's really fascinating and i haven't heard of anyone else kind of the, the the grief of it is, you know, kind of such that you like have people you work with to kind of distribute that burden of yeah. saying goodbye to the tree.
0: Yeah, I can tell you, I can tell you, you know, the, I can tell you the trees that I've lost. I could describe them. Most of them had names. I could tell you the name. I could tell you the year they were lost and I could also tell you how I lost them. Uh, so, you know, that, I, I think that needs to continue to be the trend because if you become callous to... Uh, the process of of losing trees at, as a responsible practitioner, that is unacceptable in my mind.
2: Interesting. Um, I'm trying to think if there are other... One that you had mentioned earlier, that the trees don't talk to you. Do they communicate with you? And if so, like how? Or if they don't, oh, they how absolutely. can you tell that they don't?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think you could... I think you can anthropomorphize a tree to basically perform in a way that satisfies every human behavior and interaction uh, from the most simple to the most complex. Um, So when I say a tree doesn't talk, I mean, I'm saying it literally doesn't give me verbal cues, but a tree communicates and you could say it's talking if you wanted to anthropomorphize. But uh, a tree is definitely giving a tremendous amount of feedback mainly in growth, uh, color and pigmentation. Um, you know, the communication devices that we've started to become more informed by is its susceptibility to disease and pest and how Uh-oh. those components are communication devices. Um, its utilization of water and its demand for resources, which I think is, a you know, food and... And liquid consumption is also a major human mechanism, right? If the verbal cues are lost. And so trees are uh, are very capable of telling you very broad things. But I think the real capacity to communicate with bonsai as a practice and a lifestyle is taking a broad indicator and then having the knowledge of both the tree's behavior, the species' behavior, the environmental context, and being able to physiologically take all of those cues and reduce it down to hypothesized reasoning for that communication and behavior. And that is the complexity of the science as well as the unexplainable component of relationship and feel connection to the tree that you can only have through a, a, an extended period of time working together.
2: Yeah. To kind of switch gears a bit, <laughs> it's a clunky transition. Um, but do you think bonsai is an art?
0: I, uh, I don't think that the practice of bonsai is an art. I think it's a craft, and we talk about. I think we talk about this a lot at Mirai specifically. I think it's like a, I think it's like a kitschy subject matter in the broader topic of the art form. But um, I think that bonsai is a craft. But I think that bonsai can be presented as an art. And I think that when you present bonsai or pursue bonsai in context. The, con- mm-hmm. the context informs the outcome if, if the bonsai practitioner or the creator is letting the tree guide the dance and is acting as a filtration to the stimuli in context around you. And I think when you present bonsai in context to people, they have no choice but to be informed and influenced by the surrounding environment. And that can mm-hmm. very much start to create dialogue pose questions challenge people make statements that would more appropriately be coined as as the as bonsai as an art form as opposed to as a craft right so the 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 difference there then becomes the context
2: yeah definitely well I think those are most of the like kind of targeted questions that I had um I am curious I'd like to discuss um your experience with bonsai in the wild and Mm. ethics but that's less within the confines of my particular project (laughs) yeah yeah
0: but that's more where i'm hoping you would that and that's actually (laughs) what i would love to that's actually what i would love to talk to you about because that's the that that's the elephant in the room honestly you know is, is is bonsai from the wild and the ethics of such
2: yeah in the interviews i've been doing a lot of people when we talk about because they know that i'm coming from an ethical perspective you know but there are like myriad ethical perspectives like there are tons of different theories um and one thing that keeps coming up or one thing that i'm interested in too is like well where does the pre-bones i plant come from and does that matter mm. and a few other people have flagged like collecting might be the most kind of like uh, richly textured (laughs) of the kind of ethical, you know, like fields, because if you're taking a cutting, I mean, you're taking something that probably wouldn't otherwise be its own organism and turning it into its own organism. Mm -hmm. If you start it from seed, like you're again, kind of like not taking it out of a context like collecting is. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but yeah. Yeah. I want that's interesting the way that you just said <laughs> that because like taking a cutting where you're like, you're taking a branch, which would not normally be its own tree. It's like, well, is that ethically irresponsible to change the function of a plant based on the, you know, the women fancy of, uh, of human intervention. I'm I, like, the, the whole discussion of, of ethics. I think you could also look at appropriation, cultural appropriation and bonsai being spread outside of Japan and pursued mm-hmm. in different. Is that, is that ethical? And, and how much can you change that and still call it bonsai and be ethical? You know, like, I think these are all components to the ethical question, but I think um, when you, and if, if you, you know, from, from a point of ethics uh, of, of collecting trees out of the wild, I think as a, as a, as a person looking at bonsai from the outside in, you might say, Hey, leave that plant where it is. That tree was growing just fine. That tree became old in that, uh, scenario because it was, you know, fine and its fate should be determined by the, by the, you know, the natural landscape and, and, the unpredictable events of mother nature that have both given rise to it and have given it also this contorted, uh, you know, and stunted aesthetic where it's barely clinging to life. And, and so you like kind of walk into that and you're like, well, that's that. Yeah, no, I understand, uh, that argument. And if we lived in a perfect world where human intervention had not already altered, not only the 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 state of so much of the native landscape, but is continuing to alter the environment. I mean, the literally the air around the entirety mm-hmm. of the native landscape. Then it then I think that that is a very valid perspective to take, and I think we would need to be respectful of that. Now, it doesn't mean that you get to bypass uh, the fact that y- you know just because humans have intervened and altered the state of the natural environment doesn't give anyone carte blanche because there still is something there to be valued and conserved and uh, sustainably considered and preserved for future generations, etc. I think where where a lot of bonsai practitioners don't find an ethical hang-up with the collection of material from the wild is because a lot of bonsai collectors are taking material out of the wild before a road is cut. Through uh, the native environment for purposes of mineral extraction, fracking, uh, timbering, a majority of our government managed lands are supported by resource extraction. The largest, uh, you know, piece of the budget for the National Forest Service is road building. Um, when you start to look at uh, the the timber industry and how much of the old growth is justifiably cut based on tree replanting practices, sort of meeting their requirements for the sake of the environment. And then when you go out and you see the devastation of a a, um, underbrush clearing crew suppressing forest fires and these stunted trees are the majority of what they're removing, And you just see these trees hacked up sitting out on the rock as if that's supposed to stop a forest fire. It starts to, from like a boots on the ground, frontline perspective, it starts to reform your thought process of what the sincerity of intentions and actually what, quote unquote, conservation or fire suppression or sustainable natural resource extraction looks like, you know. And ultimately... Mm -hmm. We did a we did a um, we did a very loose, but I would say fairly accurate um, uh, a very loose but fairly accurate, um, not a survey. There we go. A very loose but fairly accurate survey of trees in the garden that were collected off of grounds that in the past seven years in North America no longer have plant material existing on them because of forest fires. And we found that 65% of the trees in the garden at Bonsai Mirai would no longer exist as a living organism had they not been collected. Again, not justification. But it is to say if we're talking about sustainability, the, sustainab- you know, the sustainability of some of the most, uh, I would say, wild interpretations of trees that are otherwise viewed as fuel for forest fires, underbrush, uh, a toxic component for cattle grazing and reproduction, and on and on and on. You know, bonsai actually sustainably saves some of those trees in that practice. You know, now that has to go hand in hand with not leaving a trace as a collector when you go into the wild, only only removing trees that have a high potential for uh, success, the appropriate dedication to aftercare, the passing of that uh, piece from hand to hand re- into responsible people's hands so that that tree continues to live on like these are all of the criteria that follow the discussion of sustainably harvesting a tree right that (laughs) have to be a continued portion of the conversation um but for somebody to ever argue that number one bonsai is not sustainable number two bonsai has some sort of significant carbon footprint i think you could also look at what does it take to make a paint pigment what does it take to make graphite pencils and paper? Um, what does it take to make canvas and its racking? You know, what does it take to make fabric uh, for we across yeah. the board? If you start to analyze almost any art form, if you view bonsai as an art form, the medium of the the stunted tree has such an insignificant carbon footprint comparatively. And yet its ability to connect an individual in a, a moment, a moment of seeing a tree and that person having about a nostalgia, identifying with an environment, understanding that smell, scene, sense, whatever it is, and valuing the relationship that they've just forged with the natural environment that they were otherwise aware of by being drunk, existing in the urban or the built environment, and losing that connection— it, it, it's an unquantifiable value that the medium of these stunted trees provides compared to the carbon footprint it takes to pursue it. And specifically when you look at sustainability, I think bonsai is actually in a plus category of sustainability as opposed to a minus category. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Is that an argument that or a criticism that people have of bonsai? Is th- the carbon footprint is large, or is? No, I wasn't aware. No, okay. no, no, it's,
0: it's not. But uh, but but sustainability is a discussion on so many different levels. You know, it's like you took that out of the mountains, shame on you. And it's like, well, but but the toilet paper that you use came from, you know. And I know that's not, I know that's not
2: well, a worthy and- discussion. But
0: it, but, but but it's like, but the amount of of resources that we consume and where they come from, if you're not if you're not in the mountains seeing those clear cuts mm-hmm. and recognizing that. And if you're not a biologist that understands how the, the 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 clear cutting or deforestation principles affect the biology of the landscape and how that trickles down into the water supplies, the salmon runs, the quality of the food mm-hmm. and the nutritional value, uh, the, the erosion issues. I, I mean like on and on and on. Like it's just, uh, yeah. you know, the ethics around the pursuit of this, very small and this has a very low rate of practice in terms of population Mm -hmm. and environmental impact because it takes so much dedication to do bonsai that it's not going to become a mainstream art form. at least it hasn't yet you know it's it's just too committed for most people
2: yeah i would think from the outside the the more resource intensiveness would be the water (laughs) because the water is something that you just need a ton of, of water resources but it's interesting sustainability is a really kind of like a I don't want to call it a problem word, but it's it's a word that I think is used a lot that at least conceptually there's so many different definitions of it. So like there's social sustainability so some, environmental activists and philosophers think that things can only really be sustainable not only when you're looking at like the overall net greenhouse gas amounts but you know does everyone in the system like have what they need to survive yeah. and things like that and so yeah sustainability is such a tricky term because i think people just feel kind of good about it but no one exactly knows what it is. Nah, if it's, that makes sense.
0: Yeah, it's like a, it's like a, like a multi-headed hydra or something. But I think, I yeah. think, I think too, when you start breaking it down like this, like this is where you start to see schools, uh, doing away with their art programs. You know, mm-hmm. and it's like, well, well, what's the value that you put on art? What's, what's the value that you put on creativity? What's the value that you put on things that we engage with that don't immediately connect to the ability to have a job that is organized and arranged around the built environment and the system of society and instead interacts with the natural landscape and forges a a greater relationship with you know with that environment. I mean like part of the projects in the wild that has been so incredibly rewarding for me is just recognizing how informed I am by the organization of the walls and the roofs and the foundations and the you know per- perfectly perpendicular structures that we construct to the, the level of, of the ground and the landscape and how quickly we're willing to alter the landscape to conform to our desires as human beings, and then how much all of the constructs of society melt away when it's just me and a tree in the, in the native environment you know, Mm -hmm. gender doesn't matter, wealth doesn't matter, job doesn't matter, ethnicity doesn't matter. Nature doesn't care. Nature doesn't care at all, you know, and suddenly all of these like really neat, clean, tidy, organized shapes that we create in the bonsai practice saying we're recreating nature in miniature stop mattering out there. And you start to recognize it's about this relationship. It's about this interaction. It's about showing up and being present and caring and and collaborating as opposed to being in control of and you know like those themes that bonsai has 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 pushed me into uh sort of usurp the the value system that's been created around sort of or, the organization of the built built society and, and all of these silly questions about sustainability that have no answer right
2: yeah and it's interesting because um some environmental philosophers and activists are also very interested in like legitimizing and spending more time art making. Mm-hmm. So like because art making tends to be, although it isn't always, a lower carbon footprint than right. <laughs> you know, other types of practices. And right. so like if we legitimize arts or crafts or other types of activities as like worthy activities. You know, which I mean, artists know that they're worthy, but there's also that uh, caricature of the starving artist or whatever. That's somehow it's um, impractical. um, Which which is not inaccurate, which is not, you know,
0: it's not inaccurate, but I also think. You, there used to be such a focus in North America on the trades as being a, yeah. an alternative to college. You know, I mean, you, mm-hmm. you got into the trade. You were a, a, an electrician. You were a plumber. You were a mechanic, and the pride of that craftsmanship, the pride of of being a tradesman, was mm-hmm. was really a strong identity in North American culture. And now it's looked at as a lower degree of education to, to be that it's looked at a, as a lesser option to pursue that path and it's such a it's so devastating because consequently we've lost, lost the craftsmanship that that we historically have had built an entire society and culture and identity on in North America you know and it's really fascinating to see us outsource all of that stuff And what do we have left is is, is we really have an incapacity to take care of ourselves?
2: Yeah, it makes me jealous of my dad. He actually is an electrical contractor. And so growing up in, in an environment where, you know, he knows so much about like the innards of a house, <laughs> like how to like do so much. And I really kicked myself because when I was younger, I should have been learning more from him, you know, mm-hmm. um, now he's about to retire, but yeah.
0: Why did you, um, why did you choose to look at, the relationship of human beings and plants and specifically bonsai tomatoes and sequoias, are you talking about conservation of sequoias and like, why I just, I, that's so curious to Definitely.
2: me. Yeah. So I grew up with a fam- from a family that always had plants. Like our year was organized around when mom would take out the plants for the spring and the summer and then move them in back, uh, during the fall. And so her family relied on their gardens for survival um, because they are relatively poor. And I've always just had plants in my life. We've always had a garden. Um, We've always had them indoors, outdoors. And so sadly, it's taken me this long to reconnect with just how important plants are for me. Um, I grew up in Indiana. and went to school there i actually studied abroad in japan for a year cool um yeah (laughs) and then went to colorado for my master's program fort collins nice and while i was there i worked for the city of fort collins botanical team and i started realizing how much i love taking care of plants like out one night Got a little tipsy on my birthday and my friends were waiting in line for like a speakeasy. I was sitting there like deadheading the planters that I usually <laughs> take care of. Like if that's what I do <laughs> when I've had too much to drink on my birthday, maybe I really like plants. You got to and the so, root. Yeah, you
0: got to the root of it. That's great. That's awesome.
2: Yeah. And so when I came to Philadelphia for my PhD. I started in aesthetics because that's why I had studied in Colorado. Um, But then I started teaching environmental ethics again. And I just love environmental ethics um, because it's fascinating and it deals with the real world. It's part of philosophy that's considered an applied ethic, which means like you deal with actual facts on the ground, like what is actually going on. And so, yeah. And then I decided I'll do a, dissertation on plants which is actually really weird for philosophy um because a lot of western philosophy focuses heavily on human beings
0: yeah yeah there uh, i know um a lot of susan samard's work has uh and there have been a few books that have brought raised the question you know, do plants feel, do plants think, do plants intentionally behave? And, and that Ooh. from a philosophy perspective, that's uh, a pretty poo-pooed line of thought to anthropomorphize, you know, the, 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 that trees are in, in, have intelligence, you know, and, that, and that's super interesting to me. I mean, I have my own Feelings about that and whatnot. But I, 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 I thought maybe some of that might be at the point of origin of what you were talking about. But how
2: mm-hmm.
0: incredibly fortunate are you that? And I just think about what you just said of your mom. Uh, took care of the trees indoors and then in the spring she brought them outdoors and took care of them outdoors. I mean, that that is an intuitive knowledge of plants and the process of integrating plants from indoors to outdoors and the acclimation process and the exposure and the care changes and whatnot is a, is a very deep knowledge to be able to do that successfully. And that was par for the course for you as a child. You were exposed to that and that awareness of such. But then you said something about her family was poor and they had to grow their own food and how interesting is it that the act of gardening used to be a practice of sustenance, and now when you look at gardening, gardening has become, I think, a a and not this is this is this is a this is a a, a certain population who garden. It is almost like a social virtue signaling that we are doing mm-hmm. our responsibility of growing our own food. And instead of it being a poor practice because you didn't have food, it's actually yeah. a, whi- a white collar practice because now you're actively trying to do your part albeit whether it's sincere or insincere to lower your carbon footprint or or provide your family with a higher nutritional source who which you know what chemicals have or haven't been applied you know what i'm saying like it's such an interesting oh, yeah. transition that has happened in, and it just speaks to this greater disconnection from the land that we kind of share which really coming back from japan and going through the day in and day out life of a bonsai professional there was a point in like the first 18 months where i was like boy i i this this is not going to sustain me long term you know like mm-hmm. in japan there's a, a a system of patrons that support bonsai professionals there's an economy that is created uh, by either those patrons or through the Kokfu exhibition, which is a national exhibition. And it drives yeah. the commercial value of bonsai in Japan. And so you have, as a professional, you have this scope of work that you're constantly performing. And I think in Japan, the dedication to the craft is really the backbone of bonsai. And then the commercial value is the incentive or the motivation. Um, Mm -hmm. but in the United States, you don't have that patronage. So to be a bonsai professional and be wiring trees and unwiring trees and seeing trees grow and then pruning them and managing their shape and you're doing it for yourself, you know, you're doing it for yourself or I was doing it for myself, Mm -hmm. but that, that practice was not going to sustain me without there being a greater call to action or reason for investing in those trees, you know, and, and and obviously I have my relationship with them and I care with them and whatnot, but, but I really do see bonsai as an art form, having the capacity to connect people to uh, a relationship that we have lost in modern society, you know, and it's, it's mm-hmm. just like that continued pursuit of what does that relationship look like? How much have I lost that relationship? How much can I rekindle that relationship? And what is the offshoots of that For me or for other people, as we continue to put our work out there and further refine its capacity to connect in all of these different ways, connect to nostalgia, connect to, you know, there's like a study that said 80% of people, you know, and I don't know who conducted it or the motivation, or I don't even know if the survey or study is accurately conveying the numbers because that's very skewable, but uh, 80% of people's first memory is of a tree. And so like, yeah, one of the things I do with my students is, is ask them, what is your tree? What is your, what is your rendition or what is your tree? And in a group of, you know, eight students coming to study here on any given week, uh, there will be eight different variations on that answer. And when you ask them where that comes from, most of it comes from their childhood memories where they viewed their interpretation of home and the fact that home associated with a tree and that tree was specific to an environment, that that is just illustrating the point of, you know, where the motivation for doing this at the level that we do it at, with the commitment that we do it at, um, where that motivation has that kind of backbone of power or reason or justification for the effort.
2: Yeah, definitely. And I find that it's really interesting with bonsai, Um, With the practitioners, I've been talking with curators and also like bonsai societies, how much educational outreach is really a part of their mission, you know, which it makes sense in the curator realm, um, but also that the local bonsai societies are really concerned with younger generations making sure to have that connection with the natural world. And one access point that they can have is through
0: bonsai. Yeah. I always question how much there, I think, I think bonsai, you know, when I came to the back to the United States in 2010, you could count on one hand, the number of people that were bonsai professionals making a living from bonsai, you know, not that that, that's not to say (laughs) that's not a, a metric, but it is to say, you know, how many people put their money where their mouth is and are actually doing things that is making bonsai more accessible particularly to the younger community. And when you say younger, you know, how many people are offering bonsai courses to elementary school kids on their own time and dime? How many bonsai clubs are taking their bonsai presence online so that the younger generation, in terms of your teenagers and early 20s, are accessing that in a way that they can both, you know, efficiently or effectively access connect to people that are of a like mind because most Boneside clubs are, uh, I would say, an older generation. And that's a kind of uh, an antiquated thought that is being reinvented by progressive clubs, at least in North America, mm-hmm. but is really, you know, the Boneside club, the Boneside convention, these things that used to be a hub for community-related events has lost some of its functionality without a little bit more of uh, understanding that modernization and per progression has to occur in order for that to continue to serve its purpose. So it's like, yeah. you know, I I, I think I, we hear that a lot, you know, but, um, but there aren't a lot of people that have actually taken the steps to make bonsai more accessible. And that's really something that I feel proud that Mariah has done.
2: As someone who found bonsai when you were 12, do you think that others, others that are 12, or would you have even enjoyed it more, do you think if you had
0: started when you were younger. Like Yeah, it's tough to hypothesize had I had had I had what we've created at Mirai when I was 12, um what would that have done to my life trajectory? I have no idea. You know, but the re- <laughs> the reason that I went to Japan was not because I wanted to go live in Japan. I mean, I was I was very open to going to Japan. It seemed really interesting. You know, but I did not have a fascination with japanese culture necessarily or the idea of living abroad necessarily or even the idea of traveling necessarily i didn't have a choice because the information Mm -hmm. that i wanted and the trees that i was collecting in the mountains that demanded technique and respect and the capacity to work on and 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 do justice to that living organism uh that kind of knowledge did not exist that i just simply could not find it and so going to japan was the was the only option you know and and coming back from japan recognizing that being secretive about knowledge and information was the biggest stunting factor to the evolution of bonsai to the accessibility to bonsai Mm -hmm. to the broad broad broad-reaching capacity of bonsai as a medium Mm -hmm. as well as to the evolution of it creatively and aesthetically to continue moving forward and accessing more communities and 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 people from different walks of life right Mm -hmm. so you know that's where that's where I, i really feel like ethics around ethics around having information you know you don't have to give information for free you can choose to do what you want with it but sharing information is almost an ethical obligation to some degree from my perspective or at least how i how i view knowledge right because you hold yeah. that knowledge so tight until you die you know how many samurai sword makers are there in the world Yeah. you know the japanese bonsai world's not thriving because they're sharing information it's 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 in a rapid decline you know and i think you can see that same kind of uh uh, uh, you know just the processing capacity of of photographers you know if you look at a photographer like beth moon she's one of three people in the world that can process photography in that way and she's using a machine that has no replacement parts for it so it's like all of these Mm -hmm. things you know the thematics kind of point in the same direction so it's really interesting
2: it's interesting that you mentioned kind of like the ethical that there's like an ethical obligation to share knowledge, cause I kind of resonate with that. Um, especially having a passion for teaching. Um, but when you think of cause this is something that's come up in my research on other chapters with seed saving, mm-hmm. like, do you think that there are certain things in bonsai that it would be a loss to human culture in general, um, or something valuable were they lost? Like there are are there things that you think you could see as a professional ten, twenty years down the road if there isn't work being done to like hold on to that knowledge, what are some things that could go by the wayside and would it be why uh wayside and would it be a major loss to human culture, do you think?
0: Yeah, so from the perspective of bonesai, I think that you have a culture in Japan that has really through their shogunine mentality and daily dedication to a pursuit seeking that perfection and and also the the romanticism about the struggle of never being able to be perfect as a human being and and the aesthetic born out of that, the wabi-sabi aesthetic of beauty and the imperfection, which creates so much of this air of mystery around these cu- cultural art forms in Japan. That's not an openly shared thing and not many people are going to pursue it with that kind of intensity to be able to sustain and maintain the technique of, of those, you know, sort of pinnacle personalities that have taken on as a lifestyle, that art form. So there's a tremendous amount of knowledge, you know, shoeing horses. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of knowledge to do that well in a way that the horse feels comfortable and to be able to read a living animal like that in that fashion. Um but when you, when you sort of expand it to the greater perspective for us in North America, the loss of old growth and the loss of ancient, I, I think that you can very clearly tie the abnormally sized proportions of our flora in the Western United States to the mentality that created the American spirit. From the perspective of this abundant, this, this concept of abundance, the, if you can dream it, you can do it, the, um, the sort of wild quest mm. for untouched land exploration, the pioneering spirit, uh, freedom, the spirit of the individual. Like, I think this, I think this all started when people hit the Rocky Mountains, and continued moving west. And they saw the Ponderosa Pine, which, you know, it's its its categorical slang name is Big Pine. And, you know, that was the beginning of it. And you can just imagine what it must have been like to walk through the Sierras and cross over that and see the Sierra junipers and the size of these 80 to 120 foot tall sentinels. And then you roll right over and you're seeing the giant sequoias on the west side of the Sierras. You walk through the coastal oaks of the valley. And then all of a sudden you're at the redwoods and you're just like, what, what? This place, like, there there, there could never be enough people to take down the grandeur of this resource. And yet now here we are, 3% of the redwoods, yeah. old growth redwoods are still in existence. You know, in British Columbia, they're logging a majority of the old growth timber um, right now off of Vancouver Island, you know, to a huge degree of protest. Uh, the majority of old growth timber goes to pulp because there aren't mills that can handle that size of lumber. And so it's not even, there, there, there's just nothing productive coming from it, and there's no replacing it. And suddenly this spirit that gave rise to one of the most, you know, creative evolutions of culture in rapid fashion and in the history, or at least the history as we know it, of mankind is being broken by the loss of this reference point. And, and I don't know that a lot of people equate the, the characteristics of our culture to the presence of trees. But if 80% of people's first memory is of a tree and the notion of home is associated with a tree, then certainly opportunity and a perspective of what the land has to offer is being communicated through this intermediary and the intermediary becomes the tree. Okay. You know, what is possible from the land that tree is telling you what's possible, you know? what is possible for, for human beings to accomplish is being supplied by that tree. You talk mm-hmm. about the kilns of, of China, Korea, and Japan being fired in terms of the development of ceramics for eating utensils, drinking utensils, storage devices. You talk about the creation of a maritime culture which allowed for the expansion of culture, trade, et cetera, being stimulated by timber-building boats and, and the invention of navigation. I mean, like, no matter where you want to go, in the history and expansion of humankind, it is completely associated with plants and trees. You talk about the Mayan civilization and the Aztec civilization, the rise and fall was provided by and limited by accessibility to that resource. It's crazy. It's really crazy. The deforestation of the Amazon. I mean, you're you're talking Mm -hmm. about something so much bigger than just the sequestration of carbon.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that then kind of going back to collecting, Because some people that I've talked to have said that in some ways, collecting some of these trees is an act of conservation because, and even, I mean, I know preservation, you're not supposed to touch it at all, but in a way like conservation in preserving like some living specimen of a tree that I don't know if we can bring up climate change, but how the ecosystems are changing um, may not be able to live in a certain place anymore, or based on the natural disasters that climate change is kind of like increasing the severity or the frequency of, like you had mentioned the fires wiping out where the trees would have been. Do you think that that's a type of ethical component to the work you see yourself in other bonsai professionals
0: doing uh, i think it is something that i'm actively aware of and i do see as a part of our work i can't speak for other bonsai mm-hmm. practitioners or professionals and whether or not they're considering they're considering their actions and engaging with bonsai to that degree and i would typically tend to assume that that probably is not a a widely uh, practice thought in bonsai necessarily. But I think when you start to plant the seed of that being a really practical and, and potentially even an incredibly authentic perspective of conservation or preservation, I think that there's a significant argument to be made that it in fact is. Um, mm-hmm. You know, right now, the bristlecone pine is is being outcompeted by the limber pine in the changing of the environment, whether it's, you know, man-made climate change, natural climate change, all that stuff. Like, we just know the climate is changing. You know, it's getting warmer, rain patterns are shifting, and it's getting drier, at least in North America. Um, on the broader sense of the that perspective, we're having a phenomenal winter here this year, which I'm, like, super psyched on because for the past several years, we've had, you know, a very low penetrating rainfall and consequently all of the native Thuia placata, the Western red cedar doesn't have the depth of rainfall to protect its roots and hydrate it. And Phytophthora is now wiping out even around Mirai. There's just randomly dead, really large old trees because of, of okay. disease being facilitated by a lack of rainfall. So, you know, but like, yeah, it's changing, but also here's the other thing is like nature doesn't nature. I mean, nature doesn't care it can't make that decision. It can only, and this is where the tree is like the constant protagonist because it's not making the decision to destroy the environment. It's not making the decision to live or die. It is only responding and it is only responding in a manner that gives back. You know, the byproduct of tree growth is oxygen, oxygen positive carbon sequestration. You know, and that's not to say trees don't give off carbon dioxide, they do, but they give off more oxygen than carbon dioxide. Great, they're contributing you know, mm-hmm. and they are using resources, but they're also self-feeding because that organic debris that they accumulate through the consumption of mineral content goes right back into the soil as, as humates and decomposes through the action of all of the other organisms that it engages with, facilitates, fosters, and supports. And like, it's a really, it's a really beautiful story of a constant protagonist. Um, mm-hmm. And so it, it, it is, it is, um, you know in the effort of trying to make a 120 foot or in the case of a redwood a 200 plus foot tall tree digestible to an individual yeah standing in front of a giant redwood is is awe inspiring a majority of the population in the world is never going to have that opportunity and that opportunity is shrinking so mm-hmm. can can bonsai allow somebody to digest the the relationship that you could have with that 200 foot plus tall tree by presenting it in a size and proportion and accessibility that allows you to understand, oh, wow, this tree has to be watered every day. Oh, wow, this tree reminds me of something. Oh, I actually care about this tree. And your relationship has just been forged. And you say, this is a redwood. Oh, my gosh, I'm going to go see those redwoods now. Or I'm going to do mm-hmm. something that supports whether it's I'm not going to leave the water on, you know, when I'm uh, going to to the bathroom or <laughs> I don't know, you know, I'm going to shower once a day instead of twice a day or who knows, you know, I'm going to get a low water yeah. utilization dishwasher. Any, anything helps. Yeah. Anything right, helps right. That that is an action moving in the direction of not gross consumption of natural resources yeah. with an ignorance that there's always going to be more, you know, that that, that is helping. And, bo- and, and, and does bonsai make that change for a lot of people? I believe it does. I believe it does.
2: Yeah, it seems like it would if the tree is kind of like... It, it seems like bonsai is something that isn't completely within the control of the individual, you know, of the human. Like, so the tree will hopefully live far beyond individual practitioners. And, yeah, that it would hopefully connect people with the reality that like you can't just replace this tree like it's not something that's replaceable it's something that takes time and work um yeah it's interesting i was i was at Winteter, which is a dupont um museum i guess and he had this giant tree and it's interesting the way that hf dupont who's one of the dupont brothers kind of looked at his gardens was to have more of a naturalistic gardenscape so it wasn't as manicured as like what Longwood Gardens is um out here in Pennsylvania but um he had this giant tree that was really sick and it was fascinating reading through the oral histories of like the tree doctor that got called in told DuPont look we can't do anything with this tree like it's it's dying it needs to be cut down and dupont was like no <laughs> like nice. i need that tree there like even though for him the tree was more about being an aesthetic object he was like that tree is irreplaceable like you need to do everything that you can do so they did the old-fashioned thing of like clearing out all the rot and filling it with cement so that the tree would hopefully be able to stand. But the person who was working on it was like, I have no idea if this is actually going to work. Like, you know, they have like an actual person inside the trunk, like scraping it out and then um, had to put the cement in brick by brick because there wasn't a really good way to get it in. Um, And so he told DuPont afterwards, he was like, well, I, you know, I, I hope I did well enough and DuPont was like, well, we'll see. Like if that tree is still standing after both of us are dead, then you'll know you did a good job. And DuPont died quite a while ago. And um, the other gentleman died in 2020. And it's kind of like, you know, trees I think can connect us with these like lifespans that, you know, we can do as well as we can do to try and like keep them living and to care for them. but they are really irreplaceable in a way, you know?
0: Yeah, I, so. I think, well, so, so you can't just leave me hanging. Is this tree still standing or not? <laughs> yeah. I mean, like... It's it... still
2: alive, yes.
0: Oh, wow. <laughs> Dude died in 2020 <laughs> and, and he won. <laughs>
2: yeah. And it does look, like, healthy-ish. Like, I am not an arborist, so I don't actually, you know... Yeah. I'm not uh, horticulturally qualified to like determine the health of an individual plant but yeah it's still alive oh. it, it looks good
0: <laughs> we we uh we podcasted with uh, uh an ex-arborist he he is a passionate tree climber i actually climbed um i climbed uh, the only climbable old growth redwood in california with mm-hmm. him last year in the summertime um and, uh, and he stopped being an arborist because he said the bulk of, you know, work that arborists do is to, is to help people remove big old trees from their property. And he had an experience where after cutting a tree and watching it, um, sort of gush a tremendous amount of moisture out of it he had like a nightmare that night that it was bleeding and and he just he just walked away from arborism uh the arborist practice and he started teaching people how to climb trees to appreciate them which i which i just thought was was so incredibly cool but like i think it's not enough to say we're gonna do our best you know and but we but Mm -hmm. we relinquish you you do have to recognize you're not in control I think like the the big difference that I feel like we apply to our bonsai practice at Mirai from what I experienced in Japan. I worked, I apprenticed with a master in Masahiko Kimura, who who is a once in a several generation uh, mind. He completely modernized and revolutionized the art form of bonsai and really made it something that. Uh, was not accessible, but was ins- inspirational to the to the Western world and the rest of the world. You know, by yeah. applying significantly artistic concepts and treating the trees as sculpture. Now, the the offshoot of that is that he was very satisfied, or uh, at least he he was very willing to pursue the sculptural practice at the sacrifice of the tree and one in every five trees perishing in the pursuit of the creation of art for him was acceptable, you know? And Mm -hmm. I think where we've kind of evolved is the, in the Japanese model, the application of those concepts, you know, for him at least did compromise and, and, and sort of contradict the relationship with nature that bonsai is supposed to forge. I'm not judgmental of him. I mean, he, he,
2: Mm -hmm.
0: he might be the most significant person to have promoted bonsai as an art form that is necessary, you know, and that was Mm -hmm. the, the, the outcome of that. But I do think that there has to be a continued move towards working from all of the different aspects, from the cultural aspect, from the, um, the horticultural aspect, from the technical aspect, from the artistic aspect, to try and figure this whole thing out. You know, even though we're not the ones that ultimately can control nature, we certainly can be the ones that don't dogpile on the life of a tree through our errant actions and willingness to say, oh, we tried." You know, like <laughs> yeah. and, and that's yeah. really that's really where um there's a lot of really cutting edge approaches to understanding mm-hmm. how we treat the environment from an application of chemicals, including fertilization, uh, and breaking down the carbon content of our soils, which leads to everything from salt to a hard pack to, uh, a loss of biology in the soil, uh, which decreases nutritional content, you know, and in mm-hmm. bonsai, you know, from the general perspective, doesn't, a lot of people might look at it and say, well, that doesn't have any role in this. But at Mirai, we look at it and we say bonsai might be the most important illustration of the necessity to pursue and think about and bring attention to the fact that there are people doing things that, although it might be applied to agronomy, has a greater implication to the life of a tree on the face of this earth.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And I find that to be fascinating, like it gives purpose to these tiny trees.
2: Definitely. Definitely. That's one thing that I've really realized through the research is that like <sighs> each practitioner has a different view of what they're doing, but everyone finds it very, very important. And there are very, very important things, I think, um, that each kind of tree is bringing on yeah, to whichever I think community so. that they're
0: in every tree has a story yeah. but when going back to your question early on of you know do i think there is in the gathering of seeds uh mm-hmm. do i think that that is necessary um i'm assuming i don't know who you talk to about the gathering of seeds as it applies to what i'm assuming is giant sequoia um but I know there's a gentleman that the National Park Service has hired to try and create a genetic database of their old growth trees before they all burn down, and that cool. yeah that that has become a major focus. And the giant sequoias uh, were one of the target species. And I had talked with him after climbing the old growth redwood as he was going to collect seeds from the giant mm-hmm. sequoias and i had also talked to an associate of his who was going into the giant sequoias after that environment had burned to see what uh-huh. was still alive and what they could connect, what they could collect genetic samples from you know and i do think it's i do think that it's important but i also think this when you talk about specifically along the continental divide of the Rocky Mountains, 95% of the lodgepole pine were eradicated by boring beetles over the course of the past 15 or 18 years, there is a 5% population of trees that are left. And everybody says, well, we need to go harvest the genetics of that 5% population because it was capable of withstanding that traumatic event. And when you start to look at that, you say, well, yes, that genetic withstood the event that occurred, but the next event that's going to occur most likely is not going to be the same trauma, and the genetic that is being repopulated is probably not going to be capable of withstanding the next outcome any better than the 95% that succumbed to those boring beetles, right? And, And that is the fascinating thing about the genetic of a seed is the genetic of a seed definitely has the ability to slowly deviate from the genetic programming of the parent material, and every seedling is genetically slightly different, right? Mm-hmm. But, but if we're waiting until we have this limited population, which is exactly what we've done, then we've already lost a majority of the genetic diversity that would actually create... Some form of that species in a manner that could respond to the variety of other stresses that are going to occur. So it feels like a um, feels a little bit like too little, too late. I am completely up and hip with we might as well try, you know, as opposed to not doing anything. But my hope would be that people, instead of collecting seeds from the trees that are on their deathbed. They'd be collecting seeds from the, the abundant trees that are thriving right now, knowing that it is only a matter of time before those trees are under the same pressure. And collecting that last little bit of DNA is going to be a fairly, I think, uh, a, a long shot for preserving that species over the course of time. Do I think it's necessary? Yes, uh, to preserve these things. I think they hold culture. I think they hold resource uh, solutions, etc., but I think the way that it's being handled is like so many things. It's such a retroactive, uh, or re- react reactive response instead of a proactive response.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: So, that was the story. RC was,
2: you,
1: hey, no, you're fine. I was just, that, that same thing reminded me of uh, the American chestnut, that story that we kind of got into with yeah. RC about the way that, you know, it was kind of like the redwood of the Eastern United States yeah. and, and the blight from Asia. And then, uh, you know that people just clear cutting ahead of it, trying to get it. And we lost all those opportunities for genetic diversity to like <laughs> save us by like our own. Kind there would of, like, have been over- chestnut
0: that would have survived. Of course, there would. You have know, been. there yeah. would have been chestnut that would have survived. Yeah. And but here's the other thing. You know, like in this changing climate, uh the the and it depends on how you choose to look at it. Like, is the insect the communication device that's allowing the tree? Because the tree. The tree becoming susceptible to insect would suggest, and I'm sure there's different theories and strategies about this, and some of this does come down to, like, sort of modern woo-woo in the horticultural realm, but, like, we know that trees produce and emit pheromones that both repel insects as well as attract insects, you know? Mm -hmm. And so for there to be that major of an infestation, the lodgepole pine was more or less calling insects as opposed to, you know, trying to, like... Don't, don't, don't look at me. I'm not here. You know, like the the lodgepole pine was like, yes, you know, and, and is that, is, is that sort of calling of the insect? Is that a, is that a martyrdom to sort of, you know, and it's not like the pine is making this gesture, but like we could, we could look at it as like, this is a, this is a species or a precursor, or is it a martyrdom saying, listen, The the density and the the fire suppression that has allowed this forest to grow with this density has created trees that are so weak that we need to interpret this communication as a change of practices to preserve, preserve our future forests, that forest fires are actually fruitful. I understand houses are built there, all of those things. Like, this is a major infrastructural shift. But, like, look, if we can't feed the population or if, you know, these things continue to happen... The population is gonna. Dec- There's gonna be a lot of changes. You know what I'm saying, and so I almost looked at it in in the in the loss of the lodge poles as like a well that that situation was one that was not sustainable. And nature will take the unsustainable. It'll take nature will will find a way to reduce the dead weight of of things that are not contributing to the ecosystem in the in the greater balance of things and. For those overpopulated forests that had very unhealthy stands of timber, based on a lack of natural management practices having the capacity to organically alter the state of the forest into a more healthy composition, you had catastrophic meltdown. Like, so, so that can trees talk, you know, or communicate. Like, th- I mm-hmm. think that's the greater landscape trying to inform and educate us. It's just a matter of if we're
1: going to choose to look at it or listen to it, you know? Yeah. What's that? It's the,
2: fascinating.
1: It's super, super fascinating. What's that? You've said before the amount of um, responses physiologically that have been mapped out, that percentage. And then the other kind of thought I had was just that idea of um, it's been documented that trees that are. Um, Kind of find their way to to perishing. Will like take their resources and like dump them back into the soil, yeah. And to to like so other trees can kind of access them. Like that whole thing is really fascinating yeah.
0: too. Yeah, and that's some of that some of Susan Samard's work and some of the her colleagues. Right, yeah. But but like. This is all highly controversial, too. There are uh, the same number of people yeah. that are like, oh, this is so amazing. Or there's a, a, an equal number of people being like, you have got it wrong. You're full of shit. You think trees are so good. They're, they're It's competition, not community, you know, whereas sort of some of this science would suggest it's community, not competition. But what you were referring to is my, my physiology professor in college saying, you know, there's 25,000 known uh, hormonal plant responses and we've mapped like 1200 of them. That was the, so we've e- got it figured know, out we we just, we're saying. Yeah. It's, it, oh. it's really interesting. Anyways, I don't, we're probably <laughs> so, f- we've probably gone
1: so far off topic. Did we? No, can we get actually, back on topic like, and hear, I want to hear what your theory yeah. is. Oh yeah. What's your theory? I want to get oh, back. Yeah, I want to yeah, get yeah. back on so, that before we, before we <laughs> let you escape.
2: So really quickly though, communication uh, between plants is part of, where the project started because I was really fascinated by the idea that plants communicate with each other but also the way that they communicate with insects, other animals, and humans um, in ways, like Ira said, we may or may not actually understand yet, you know, so um, a lot of that science, it's fascinating looking kind of as an outsider on the scientific landscape, like, some people suggest that there's a bit of a paradigm shift going on. So, like going from this kind of like lifeless view of plants, where it's like they're living, but they're basically just machines, to a more kind of like uh, what do you call it? Um, it's almost like a romanticism that they're more like alive and spirit filled or something like that. Um, and so it's really cool when you talk to plant studies people, some people will say, Oh, of course they've got a soul or spirit or consciousness. And then if you talk to another plant studies people, person, of course they don't, <laughs> they're just responding to stimuli, you know, kind of mindlessly. Um, so I think it's a really cool and interesting point, um, scientifically, but also culturally that we're at with plants because people are interested in kind of exploring some of these questions of consciousness or non-consciousness. It's very divisive. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's kind of like with my project, half of the people are like, well, why are you even arguing that we buy it? Like we plants are people. And the other half are like, why would you even try and do that? Like plants are just like living machines. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So, And you're arguing uh, that
0: you're exploring that question or you're argue, arguing what plants so, are?
2: No, that's where I'm a little bit different. So I'm starting with an ethic of care. So ethics of care kind of comes out of a criticism of this like highly individualized ethic that kind of like the the center of ethics and ethical thinking is the individual rational person, human being person, right? And what is ethics? Well, it's thinking about theories using our reason or making calculations about how much pleasure or pain is produced by a certain action, you know, kind of like very theoretical. Um, ethics of care says no, right? We should take as a starting point dependency and relationships. So what should we really think of as kind of like the center of ethics? A mother-child relationship or the type of dependency that's in like a parent-child relationship. Because humans during their lives, everyone experiences dependency like radical dependency on another person and so that relationship it's more important to look at like those fundamental relationships is kind of like the center of ethical thinking kind of you know or this the center of a type of ethical structure and so coming from a plant family a lot of the plant textbooks for public consumption talk about plant care and ethics of care traditionally in the Western philosophical literature only really applies in relationships between two humans. And so this is where you get like the kind of concept, ugh, concept-heavy concept distinction between like a human and a person. So in ethics, a person is an indicator for someone who has this inherent or intrinsic moral value. And a human is like the biological organism. Now, most humans are persons. I would argue all humans are persons. Um, But this is where you get like, like my husband, for example, refers to our pet kids as persons. He does believe that other animals are persons, meaning they have inherent or intrinsic moral value. And so, Is it tree a person? Not usually in Western philosophy. And so it's even kind of controversial right now to admit other animal persons under some views of care ethics. And so I wanted to look into like, well, we talk about plant care. Are we just talking about a type of tradition or custom? Or is there something ethical going on there? So like when we say we're... caring for plants or we have an obligation to care for plants is that an actual ethical obligation right um does that make sense yeah and so why do we have to
0: we're quantifying it as persons because that's how it fits into the definition of the branch of ethics that you're referring to yeah okay
2: that's one that's one option um lots of people have taken that route Um, Matthew Hall has a book about plant personhood that's really interesting. He actually, it's a religious studies and a philosophy book. So he goes through different world religions and histories to kind of show like what different indigenous beliefs about plants were. So kind of like trying, uh, plant personhood or plants as persons by Matthew Hall, um, And so he kind of does that genealogical work to try and see, like, where did this concept that plants are so different than animals come from kind of in our, like, contemporary culture? Um, Another option is to just, like, radically change what we mean by a person to admit things like plants. Um, And the third option is to reject the personhood requirement from the ethics of care. So we can have an ethic of care without persons. And so that's the approach that I'm working with right now Mm -hmm. because I think that plants are very interesting and importantly different than what we talk about when we talk about persons. Um, I think persons are picking out like a particular set of things that's more close to what we talk about when we talk about like what's interesting or meaningful or important or valuable with like humans and other animals. So, yeah, so <laughs> that's kind of like the first half of the project. Just mm-hmm. kind of like doing the like the, the argumentation um, of even saying why we should even consider this option, right? that's what grad school is. (laughs) It's a lot of like, here, let me justify why we should even start thinking about this thing that I think is interesting. Um, And then the last three uh, chapters are case studies. And so I take the theory that I made, or that I worked on presenting so that you can have an ethic of care where there's a human and there's a non-person, but it's still ethically... Rich and it still requires ethical obligations, even though the plant isn't a person. And so, I start with bonsai because I thought that the the relationship between bonsai practitioners and their plants are just very special. They're very different. And when I was younger, I remember reading about a claim from a bonsai practitioner that you have to be constantly communicating with the tree because the tree and the practitioner are like co-creating. It's not something that you can just impose your will on the tree. Like that's not what bonsai is trying to do. Bonsai is working with kind of like the natural form and the human intervention is to kind of enhance that form in a way that the bonsai couldn't do on its own. Mm -hmm and so that coupled with um my experience talking to people about bonsai seems like people either love bonsai or they hate it they think it's beautiful or they think that it's ugly and so i thought that that would be a really interesting case study to see like well is care going on there if some people like view it and say oh it's ugly it's torturing the plants right which i'm sure you've heard that type of response from general public before, which has been fascinating talking to people about how much work is involved and how offensive that kind of quick judgment is on -hmm. the work that somehow they're like torturing or like hurting the tree. You know, if you actually talk to bonsai practitioners, like some people will get very, very actually angry, like have an emotional response to that type of, criticism which makes sense with the work that bonsai practitioners are doing and the second case study is tomato plants because the reason why we have tomato plants nowadays is to eat tomatoes and so does it make sense when we talk about the care of crops or the care of tomato plants that we're actually caring about the plant kind of in and of itself or are we just using it as an instrument to get the tomatoes Mm. and if we are is anything Unethical <laughs> happening in that yeah. relationship. That's interesting. Holy cow!
0: Yeah you, just, no. yeah, you really just that, that was like the yeah. that that has more of a correlation to your question about taking a cutting and having that be ethical. That's really fascinating. Yeah.
1: You can tie that into yeah. bonsai too. I Woo. think. Like, what are you trying yeah. to get out of it? There's a whole use thing there. The
0: tomato thing fascinated yeah. me when you put yeah. it next between bonsai and the giant sequoia. I was like, well,
1: this is there has to be something. This is here. interesting. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Yeah, and then the the sequoias I chose in part because a lot of my like examples with the exception of bonsai, although I ended up like focusing on the American practice of bonsai basically. So most of the people I've reached out to are practicing in the US. um, So they're kind of part of that diaspora. But um, because tomato plants just seem super kind of Americanly entrenched in American gardens, and then Sequoias are like quintessentially American. Like they're a wild plant that's identifiable, that, you know, has a lot of meaning and symbolism to a lot of folks, I think. So, yeah. But they're all different contexts. Like I think bonsai is interestingly aesthetic and kinship, tomato plants are like use. And sequoias are like wild plants, and so it's kind of like in each of these different contexts, can care actually be happening, like ethical care? And if so, how? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, does that does that make sense? That's great. Sorry, yeah,
1: back. that was great. That's you know, really. better than I thought it was going to be.
0: <laughs> I'm you, just you you, exceed, you exceeded <laughs> Iris' expectations. That's <laughs>
1: tough to do. That's tough to do. Hats <laughs> off to you. That's great. <laughs> Yeah, I was ri-
2: rolling the dice. Well,
1: uh, what is, so, and maybe you said, but if you could clarify, maybe then, like, so what yeah. is your, what is your theory? What is your hypothesis? I mean, you're kind of yeah, getting, where, where gathering where you the information. In, where do you stand in that question? Yeah, for all, yeah. maybe for all three of those things. And I mean, I don't know how much detail right. you want to get into. How do you say your last name?
2: Brelji. If we,
0: if we were intervi- interviewing Kate Brelji <laughs> and we said, Kate, uh-huh. what is your stance? Yeah. Yeah of the tables.
2: So I, I, <laughs> I do think that ethical care can happen in all of those situations. But in practice, there are a lot of danger zones. <laughs> so, you know, like, for example, if I go to a bonsai show and I'm like, oh, that's kind of cool. And then I buy a plant and think of it more as like... I don't have the appropriate attitude towards it, like that can be a downfall, like that can make it like unethical. (laughs) So if I'm like just looking at the plant as like something totally disposable, for example, or something that isn't deserving of care or that I don't think has any inherent value kind of in and of itself, that could be a downfall of it, right? And also on the like kind of results side, do the actions they take towards the plant actually result in good things for the plant? Mm -hmm. So like hopefully most often they do. And I'm sure most often for like professionals, that's the case in bonsai. Now kind of moving that way, you know, you have different types of actions. Some might turn out well for the plant and some might not. Um, I think tomato plants are really hard because of the attitudes. Like, I don't think, (laughs) at least in the U.S., there are always, like, attitudes towards a tomato plant that, like, say, yes, that tomato plant is, like, valuable in and of itself. Um, But in terms of like recognizing that there's dependency in the relationship. Farmers will tell you that, like gardeners will tell you that. They, they know that the tomato plant is dependent on them and whether they're farmers that rely on the produce of the plant to like survive financially. Um, or, you know, like my grandpa living off of their home garden, like, you know, they recognize that dependency And they recognize the type of interactivity that they have with the plants. Um, And tomato growers are like probably professional bonsai practitioners, very aware of what succeeds or fails. Mm -hmm. And they're quite dependent on how it goes for that plant. Um, The one place where it might fall down is in industrial farming, where you're just kind of like, getting the stuff out of the tomato plants and then destroying the plants right away. Because then is it like really for the plant or not? But then it's like, well, is the importance of the plant to like reproduce or not? Like there are just all these fascinating kind of hanging threads. Um, and sequoias I still need to look into a lot more. Mm. So I haven't really delved as much into that chapter yet. Yeah. Um, I, I have a feeling it'll be like the other ones. They'll be like things I didn't realize before that foresters can tell me. Um, I always have my intuitions going into something, but then once I actually talk to people who work with the plants, it's, you know, all up for grabs.
0: Yeah. 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 Very interesting. Well, I I, I certainly are now, are you pursuing redwoods or giant sequoias? Cause you know, S- yeah S- se- se- sequoia sequoia sempervirens like people call them sequoias but they're more commonly called redwoods and then giant sequoias right. is sequoia dendron giganteum but people typically call them sequoias so and people call right. it giant sequoia redwoods and it's just a whole smorgasbord of horrible connections with the slang terms so they're the common name which one are you focused on because those are so, two, two different worlds a coast and yes. alpine you know
2: and then there's also the um, Chinese redwoods that like we didn't know existed really until like the 1950s. We in the West, they thought that they were extinct. Mm-hmm. And so if you go to arboretums, that's kind of like we're collecting seeds that were popular in the 1950s like linteter they'll have chinese redwoods or chinese sequoia meta sequoia yeah. instead of like indigenous sequoia which to me was fascinating i was like if you're going to have a sequoia like have the sequoia dendron giganteum like, but yeah. I, no in the 1950s it was way more important to have a meta sequoia um, because of how fast, you know, cause it was like this tree that they thought was extinct was no longer extinct. So, um, yeah, so sequoia dendron giganteum nice. is kind of my focus. Yeah. Um, but we'll see if, if that changes in the course of the research, I'm open to shifting slightly
0: very cool, so, oh, very cool yeah. oh well, I wish you uh I wish you all the best anything we can do to help we we are always here to to talk uh, cause it's obviously a passionate awesome. subject for us, but um yeah, yeah, think,
2: anytime you want an interlocutor who wants to ask you uncomfortable ethical questions
0: <laughs> that's exactly while what we love yeah.
2: well, withholding any judgment because I'm not in the community <laughs> like, that's true yeah you're very know.
0: you're very neutral to everything that was good. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I try and be, it's one of my like teaching things because I come from such a like diverse, like intellectual, like backgrounds. I try to be kind of like, let people express what their views are. And then we can kind of go from there. But,
0: How much longer until you, so do you have to prove your dissertation, present your dissertation? How, what does that look like?
2: Yeah. It's an oral defense, so hopefully I'll have a full draft of it by the end of this school year, and then I'll have the summer to clean it up. Hopefully, have the defense um, in the fall. At least that's my like, my like uh, New Year's dream journal. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like, okay, that's the goal. Finish by the end of 2022. So
1: the defense calls Ryan Neal to the stand. <laughs> <laughs> what what do you do what do you do with
2: this? With the pro- or with my PhD in philosophy? <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah.
2: That is the question. <laughs> so I mean, I went to, to to do my PhD because I love teaching. I had a terminal master's degree at Colorado State University. So like they specialize in environmental ethics and aesthetics and so i was like okay i'll go get my master's see if this is what i want to do um and as part of the program you're a ta and i loved teaching i had already taught for one year in a high school in south korea in (laughs) pohong as a gap year um with fulbright and so that was a really good experience and i loved teaching and so i thought okay i'm going to go on to get my phd so they'll have like more job security, which if you're in the humanities, it's it's kind of like, there's so few jobs. <laughs> it's a strange reason to go on. Um, but I ended up really enjoying getting to like, really choose what I'm working on and I'm loving the research. So after this is done, I'll probably apply for academic teaching jobs. And then if that doesn't come through because of the market, like I can look to nonprofits, the research is really fascinating, so I'm hoping that it'll allow me to, like, pivot into a different industry if higher ed um, isn't in the cards. So. Wow.
0: Wow. A lot of dedication.
2: Or I could always go back and train as an electrician with my dad, and that would be fine, too. <laughs> so.
0: You'd be able to fix a lot of things you know that's like the whole yeah. that's kind of the trickle down well uh it was very much a pleasure uh nice to meet you yeah. super uh, enjoyable to speak with you and uh, and i wish you the best of luck
2: thank you and thank you for taking so much time i'm sure you're like incredibly busy at mirai so i really appreciate it.
0: lots of trees but you know we we like talking (laughs) about trees so it's all good uh we will uh we'll get you the audio file so that you have this for your reference and i I really uh i think it's really great i think we'll probably put this out there as well because i think it's important discussion
2: awesome very cool thank
0: you all right kate well you take care we'll send it to you and we'll be in touch
2: all right. Sounds Thanks, great. Kate. Thank you so much. Have Take a good, good evening. Care. Okay. Bye. Okay. Right, you too. Bye.